This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the Gospel of John. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. All he does is he calls out her name. And there's something in the tone and in the inflection of his voice. Why didn't she recognize him? I mean, you know, can it be because his glorified body, you know, she wasn't expecting to see Jesus? You know, is there something about his glorified body that that was slightly different? Is she just so caught up in the emotion of the moment that she's not thinking clearly? Who knows the reason why she doesn't really recognize him? But when he says her name, she knows it's Jesus. Picture the scene with Pastor Gary today. Your teacher, the one you saw as your savior, has been killed. He's buried in a tomb, and you've been mourning for three days. And when you finally come to visit his grave, it's empty. What would your reaction be? It would probably mirror that of Mary. As you'll discover today, confusion and heartbreak clouding your ability to see. But listen. Just as Jesus, alive and well, called out to Mary, He's calling to you too. He's calling you to see Him and to rejoice in His resurrection. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John, chapter 19, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. A lot of times, those who were being crucified were offered an analgesic. It was something to help deaden the pain. And they were offered wine mixed with myrrh to help deaden the pain, to help numb the pain. Jesus in Mark 15, 23 refuses that, which is amazing because, listen, he didn't want anything to deaden the pain that he took for you and me. He didn't want anything to mask it. He took the pain for us in its entirety on our behalf. He refused that sponge that was lifted to him with wine mixed with myrrh. That was an analgesic. This is something different. This is vinegar. This is probably very old and diluted wine that he takes a sip of. Why? Because he has one final thing to say. And and he's parched at this point. Very dry mouth. He just wants one little sip because he's got one final thing to say here. And the last words that Jesus utters is, it is finished. Then it says, with that, he bows his head. And notice, and he gave up his spirit. His life was not taken from him. Jesus said back in John 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down that I might take it up again. He gave up his spirit. He dies a willing death for you and me. This was not taken from him. His life was given for us. When he utters here, it is finished. It is three words in our English language. It is one word in the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek. And when he uttered, it is finished, the Greek word is tetelestai. It is one word in the Greek, tetelestai. This is an interesting word. And, I, you know, these are one of these times where, do I really want to bore you with some of the Greek? But here, but this is important. You understand the tense, okay? I'm going to explain it. 
Tetelestai is in the perfect passive indicative tense. What does that mean? What it means is that Tetelestai literally translates, it was finished, it is finished, it will always be finished. The richness of what Jesus says there, it's kind of missing in our English language. Tetelestai means it was finished, it is finished, it will always be finished. Now, Tetelestai was a word that was actually commonly used in other settings during this particular ancient time. When you bought something from a merchant and you received a bill of sale and you paid that bill in full, today, you know, it might be stamped paid. In those days, it was written across the bill of sale, Tetelestai, meaning it was paid. It is paid. And will always be paid for. When you paid your taxes in these days, after you paid your taxes, it was given unto you a piece of paper written to Telestai, meaning it was paid, it is paid, it will always be paid. And listen to this. When you were a prisoner in those days, your crime was posted over your prison cell door. And when you had served your time, or when something or someone on your behalf paid the price for you, they would come along and they would put a sign over your prison door that simply said, Tetelestai, meaning it was paid, it is paid, it will always be paid. Now think about this. It was common in merchants to prove that you had paid the bill of sale. We owed a debt that we could not pay. It was posted over prison cell doors when you had served your time and when your sentence had then been expunged to Telestai. We, in a similar sense, are prisoners to sin and death. And Jesus comes along and cancels the crime that was charged against us. And he says to us, it is finished, it was finished, and it will always be finished. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. His final words here, it is finished. It's all been accomplished. In other words, by saying this, what he means is that he has satisfied the demands of God's justice, that he has appeased the wrath of God, and that he has bridged the gap between God and humanity by his sacrificial death on the cross. It is finished. You know, he had said back in John chapter 4, In verse 34, he said, my food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And now here in John 19, he's saying, it is finished. I have finished the work of the Father. I have appeased his wrath. I have satisfied the death and the judgment against us. I have bridged the gap between mankind and a holy, loving Father. And his work was completed and finished. And there is no other work necessary and no other work that could ever improve upon the finished work of Christ. What Jesus did on the cross was sufficient for all of our sins, past, present, and future. It was finished, it is finished, and it will always be finished. His last words on the cross, and then he bows his head, and he gives up his spirit. It says here, now it was the day of preparation, verse 31, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Now that that is something that John tells us that the other Gospels don't, and I'll explain in a minute. He says, so it's a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. 
The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. So Passover, the feast of Passover was really an eight-day feast because it runs congruent with the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the Jewish calendar. Day one is Passover. Seven days after that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Altogether, eight days. The day of Passover was the day that you shared the Passover meal. The next day was the first day of Unleavened Bread, and it was, as John says here, a special Sabbath. And that is true because Leviticus 23, 7 says that when God instituted the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and actually the last as well, is to be like a Sabbath day. That means that there are some days, some years rather, when the Feast of Unleavened Bread might begin the day before a regular Sabbath. Now the regular Sabbath to a Jew even today is sundown Friday night, until sundown Saturday night. So Saturday has always been, still considered today by Jews, to be the Sabbath. I mean, it's always still been the Sabbath. But there are some years where if the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins the day before their regular Sabbath, it would be referred to, as John refers to it here, as a special Sabbath. So it is possible on certain years for you to have two Sabbath days together, the regular Sabbath, and a special Sabbath as the first day of unleavened bread. I've said this before, this is not a salvation issue. It's, it's not, you know, it's not going to be a, a matter that, that we need to argue over, but I'm not convinced that Jesus died on a Friday. I'm convinced and I'm more persuaded that Scripture presents a Thursday crucifixion uh, because it's pretty hard to get Jesus dead and buried by Friday night and have him three days and three nights in the tomb and he's already up Sunday morning. It's really hard to do that math. I mean, I know you can, and I've heard all kinds of things. Well, the Jews only counted half a day, and that's nonsense. I'm telling you, it's really hard to get three days and three nights when you have him dead and in the tomb Friday night and all of a sudden he's up by before Sunday morning. So again, it's not a salvation issue. The only important thing is Jesus died. That's a salvation issue. He died for our sins, whether it's a Friday or Thursday, doesn't really matter. But I only say it because I think that's the reason why we read it this way. It's a special Sabbath. There's two Sabbaths together. That's why then they put him in the grave, I believe, Thursday night. Now you have Friday is a special Sabbath. Saturday is the regular Sabbath. So the first day that the women could go to the tomb to embalm his body was Sunday morning. And that makes better sense in terms of the math. But again, it's not debatable. You can believe Friday and be wrong if you want. But anyhow, uh, but, but as he says it here, I'm just totally kidding. But as he, not really. And then he says in verse, but then verse 38, it says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Jesus, uh, rather, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. 
at the place where Jesus was crucified, here's a description. There was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, that tells us a little bit about the tomb, but before I get to that, first, this introduction here to Joseph of Arimathea. He asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Uh, in, in Matthew's gospel, it tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, and so likely this is his private garden tomb, and he had to be rich to have all that this describes. Luke's gospel tells us that Joseph of Arimathea descended from the vote to convict Jesus. Joseph was a part of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, but Luke's gospel tells us that he dissented. He didn't agree with the condemnation of Jesus. And so we find out here that he is, uh, he's, he's secretly a follower uh, of Jesus. But, you know, he, as you are well aware, when you first come to know Christ, you're either really zealous or you're kind of shy about, you know, how do I tell my friends? And Joseph was the latter. He's like, how do I tell my friends? And he feared the Jews and he feared his, he feared his reputation being lost and all this kind of stuff as a strong Orthodox Jew who now is suddenly believing in Jesus as the Messiah, he asks for the body of Jesus. Pilate gives him the body with permission, takes the body down with the help of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was the guy we saw in John chapter 3. What must I do to be, to be, you know, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus talks to him about how to be born again. They take down Jesus' body. They prepare it, and they place it in this tomb. And it says in verse 41, where Jesus was crucified, nearby there was a garden. So the tomb is very near the crucifixion site. It says it was a new tomb. No one had ever been laid in it. And it was nearby. And Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, tells us that it was hewn out of solid rock. So you put all these things together. We don't know exactly where the tomb of Christ is today, but we have a good guess. This particular location fits all the description. Golgotha is just a stone throw away from this place. You can tell by the way that it was hewn out of solid rock. It fits the description of Matthew 27. You can tell that there was a garden nearby because they discovered a huge cistern dating from the time of Christ underground that would have watered this beautiful garden area. They could tell there was a vineyard there as well because they they found uh, a grape press. And, and so this fits a description of a wealthy garden nearby, hewn out of solid stone. But again, we can't be sure this is the actual place. What I can tell you is that if it is the actual place, people from around the world come to this place day after day after day to see nothing because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. There's no body there, folks. And Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And so the empty tomb is a testimony of his uh, divinity and the truth of who he is as our Messiah. And to chapter 20, let's go a little bit into chapter 20 because I want to save just enough for next week so we can close out the gospel of John next week. But chapter 20 says early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday. I know sometimes you think Monday is the first day of the week. That's the first day of the work week. Well, the first day of the week on a calendar is a Sunday While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and, here we go, the other disciple, by the way, the one Jesus loved. (laughs) And she said, 
They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. And I love this commentary here. It's like, do we really need to know this, John? But he tells us, now both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I mean, really, John, do we need to know that? Does that change the gospel message anyway? But okay, thank you. You're not only loved more, but you're a faster runner. We get it. And it says, verse 5, that he bent over, which is also kind of descriptive because you, the only way you can get into this tomb when we go in to look, it's a small entrance. You have to bend over. You have to stoop to go in. That fits the description too. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. And then Simon Peter, who was behind him, you might want to write in the margin of your Bible, and finally caught up because he wasn't as fast as John arrived and went into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. You know, that's an interesting description, because he's wanting us to know, this wasn't a scene where some grave robbers came along, and then, you know, just stole the body of Jesus, and all the linen strips were all disheveled. Everything was just neatly and in order. The way the language presents, it indicates that it's as if, and, you know, and I certainly believe this is, this is a clear possibility that, that Jesus just in his glorified body rose up from those strips of linen and just kind of emerged out of them. And then the strips of linen were still just lying there undisturbed. Uh, so it's, it's interesting language there. And verse 8 then says, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, thank you so much, John, also, also went inside. He saw and believed, but it says they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. There's, they're not putting all of the, they're not connecting all the dots just yet, but it, but it's coming. And then, verse 10, the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary, stood outside the tomb crying. This is Mary Magdalene. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Now notice this. You know, she's the first one, a couple of the Marys, get to the tomb early in the morning. They're going then to improperly embalm. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had just prepared his body for a quick burial. They went as a follow-up to really do it right, as only ladies can, about a lot of things that men can't do well. And so uh, there they are, and, and Mary runs and tells the disciples, we can't find the body of Jesus. Peter and John go, they look in. They didn't see the angels. So when Mary now, after Peter and and John have left, when she goes back in and she's kind of bewildered and she's looking, then suddenly these two angels appear. And it is one of, and I don't know too many cases. In fact, I, I haven't researched every example. I think it's the only time in the Bible that someone wasn't afraid of seeing angels. It's as if, even though she's a bit bewildered about everything, there's just this calm peace that comes over her. Here she sees these two angels, they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. You know, she had stooped in to look in the tomb, sees these two angels, then she comes back up out of the tomb, she turns around, and there Jesus is standing there. 
Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And notice this. All he does is he calls out her name. And there's something in the tone and in the inflection of his voice. Why didn't she recognize him? I mean, you know, can it be because his glorified body, you know, she wasn't expecting to see Jesus? You know, is there something about his glorified body that that was slightly different? Is she just so caught up in the emotion of the moment that she's not thinking clearly? Who knows the reason why she doesn't really recognize him? But when he says her name, she knows it's Jesus. When he calls her by name, she knows. And then she turned around toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And that's not really a great translation. It really means master. Rabbi is teacher. Rabboni is um, a more emphatic form of rabbi. Rabboni means master. Rabbi really means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father, and that isn't because, like, she's unclean and don't touch me. He's basically, do not detain me. So she's clasping his feet. She's worshiping him. He says, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, we're going to pick it up there next week, but let me just close with this. A woman's testimony, don't get offended, ladies. This is the first century I'm talking about. You've come a long way, baby. But in the first century, first century, a woman's testimony was inadmissible in a court of law. She was not considered a reliable witness. I want you to notice what Jesus intentionally does in the divine plan of things. The very first witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a woman. You can say many things about the wonderful ministry of Jesus, and you can describe it in multiple ways. One of the things that stands out to me about the ministry of Jesus is his love and tenderness towards women. The way he cherished them and respected them and honored them. You know, by the way, look at a great deception religion in our world today. Islam is one of the great abusers of women. One of the great mistreatments of women. But Christianity following Christ should be among all other world religions among all the many things you might be able to say, we should also be a faith that esteems and honors and values women. The very first witness. This would be counter to the culture of the day. If you really want to make sure someone is a valid, reliable witness, you wouldn't in this day choose a woman. But that's what God did. Mary Magdalene, you're going to be the first witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you go and proclaim to your brothers that Jesus is alive. They won't believe her at first, but that'll be next week's story. Nevertheless, the honor that God places upon women with Mary having the esteemed privilege of being the very first eyewitness of the resurrected Lord Jesus. What a great thing. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. 
Pastor Gary's been going through the book of John. If you missed any part of this message, you can hear it again on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You might want to download our mobile app so you have these teachings with you on the go. That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, feel free to take some time to learn about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd love to meet you. Please join us for worship and Bible study. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other info on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We hope and pray you've been blessed by today's teaching in the book of John. Please know that we're praying for you too. Although we're out of time for today, keep reading on your own in the book of John until Pastor Gary continues teaching through this extraordinary account of Jesus' life on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go But still you know